The company was one of the biggest companies ever to have existed in the world. Its shares skyrocketed, more people bought shares and people became wildly rich. And then, just as quickly as dreams had come true, it imploded. This is the story of the South Seas bubble. Hi and welcome back to the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. I'm Steve, your host. Before we examine today's tale, we will look back at London society in the 18th century, which created the environment in which news caused greed, and a frenzy was created, causing the South Seas Company to become the most valuable company the world has ever seen. But it could be argued that it really all starts with coffee. The origins of coffee has many tales, but perhaps my favourite is that Kaldi, a goat herder in 9th century Ethiopia, discovering the energising and invigorating effects of coffee when he saw his goats getting excited after eating some berries from a tree. Kaldi told the abbot of the local monastery about this, and the abbot came up with the idea of drying and boiling the berries to make a beverage. He threw the berries onto the fire, whence the unmistakable aroma of what we know now as coffee drifted through the night air. The now roasted beans were raked from the embers, ground up and dissolved in hot water, and so was made the world's first cup of coffee. The abbot and his monks found the beverage kept them awake for hours at a time, just a thing for men devoted to long hours of prayer. Word spread, and so did the drink, through the Arabic world. That much is a tale, who knows whether it's true or not, the rest we know is true. By the 16th century, coffee was the beverage of choice in Persia, Egypt, Syria and Turkey. Its reputation as the wine of Araby, boosted no end by the thousands of pilgrims visiting the holy city of Mecca. Every year, from all around the Muslim world, merchants had taken coffee beans home from Ethiopia and began to grow it from themselves. From the Middle East, the popularity of coffee soon spread through the Balkans, Italy, to the rest of Europe, east to Indonesia and then west to the Americas, largely thanks to the Dutch. Coffee was so powerful a force that it forged a social revolution Coffee was drunk at the home as a domestic beverage, but more significantly, it was also drunk in the specialised coffee houses which sprang up in the villages, towns and cities across the Middle East and East Africa. These coffee houses soon became all the rage and were the place to go and socialise. Coffee drinking and conversation were complemented by all manner of entertainments, musical performances, dancing, games of chess, and most crucially, gossiping, arguing, 
in discussing the breaking news of the day or night. These coffee houses soon became known as the schools of the wise, the place you went to if you wanted to know what was going on in your world. The link between coffee and the intellectual life had been established. It did not take long for coffee to travel the short distance to the European mainland where it was first landed in Venice. On the back of its lucrative trade, the city enjoyed with its Mediterranean neighbours. Initially, however, coffee met with the suspicion and religious prejudice it suffered in the Middle East and Turkey. It was viewed as an equally mysterious, exotic and intoxicating liquor. England's first coffee shop was established in Oxford in 1650 in a building known as the Grand Café, which is still going strong now and worth a visit if visiting Oxford. London's first coffee house opened in 1652 in St Michael's Alley, near St Michael's at Cornhill's Churchyard. It was run by Pascal Rosie, a Greek man who in 1672 also set up a coffee stall in Paris. Pete describes visiting his first London coffee house on the 10th of December 1660. I went in the evening to the coffee house in Cornhill, the first time I ever went there and I found much pleasure in it through the diversity of company and discourse. For Pepys and many other literate men, the coffee house was his most useful way of hearing news. By 1664, Pepys was visiting his favourite coffee houses near London Royal Exchange more than three times each week and often twice a day, usually to meet his friends or colleagues by prior arrangement but sometimes simply to overhear the stories of trade and politics told by strangers. The coffee cost a penny and had unlimited refills. These places were known as penny universities. Professional businessmen would keep regular hours at a particular coffee house, knowing full well their colleagues and clients could easily seek them out there. In Pepys's diary, on the 24th of May, 1665, he refers to the latest news as heard of a great threat of a plague growing upon us. This was the beginnings of the Great Plague, which in 18 months killed 100,000 people in London alone, a quarter of the population. The Great Plague and the Great Fire of London, which took place a year later, devastated London of course. But London's nothing if not resilient, as we were to find out later in the Blitz as well. By 1675, there were more than 3,000 coffee houses in England alone. Some even had bed and breakfast for overnight guests. What made the late 17th century coffee houses unique for the time was they were noted for their democratic character. People of all ranks sat alongside each other, actively engaging in debate with both friends and strangers alike. The layout of many coffee houses fostered this rich social mixing. Many coffee houses possessed long communal tables where patrons were expected to sit and engage in conversations. I was lucky a few years ago to be invited to the House of Lords for lunch. The Lords that had guests for lunch had a small round table, seated appropriately for their number. The other Lords without guests were expected to sit in a long table and the Lord who was giving me lunch told me they were almost like school children, waiting for their friends to sit down beside them so that they didn't get stuck beside some terrific bore. It was a lovely lunch, 
I'm sure the title, Lord Steve, would suit me just fine. But back to the story. Like a Noah's Ark, every kind of creature would walk into the coffee shops. They would include a town wit, a grave citizen, a lawyer, a butcher, a reverend, and a sailor, all talking and debating the issues of the day. Whether a man was dressed in a ragged coat and found himself seated between an earl and a bishop, it made no difference. He was able to engage them in conversation and know that he would be answered civilly. From all walks of life, people came in to sip a bowl of coffee and chat to their neighbours, free from the conventions of class known in every other social circumstance. The rules and orders of the coffee house, illustrated and printed in 1674 as a coffee broadside, said equality was to prevail amongst all men in these establishments, and no man of any station need to give up his place to a finer man. Henri Mission stated in his memoirs from the late 17th century, coffee houses were very numerous in London and extremely convenient. You have all manner of news there, you have a good fire, which you may sit by as long as you please. However, it was a matter of opinion. Swiss visitor Caesar de Lesseur noted how the English coffee houses were generally not over clean or well furnished, owing to the quality of men who resorted to these places. Amongst the clientele were not only scholars, wits and politicians, but also workmen and the less well off, who habitually began the day by going to the coffee houses in order to read the latest news. The ones who could not read would listen and have the stories read to them. Coffee houses became increasingly associated with news culture, as news became available in a variety of form through the coffee houses. These forms included print newspapers, both licensed and unlicensed, manuscripts and word of mouth. Runners also went around different coffee houses reporting the latest current events. Circulations and bulletins announcing sales, sailings and auctions was also common in coffee houses. Coffee houses thus became highly significant centres for dissemination and receipt of commercial and political news. Indeed, by the late 17th century, many London coffee houses catered specifically for highly specialised commercial interests. Tom's Coffee House in the City of London, for example, was the haunt of capitals, insurers and bankers. Similarly, London's book publishers gathered eagerly every day at the Latin Coffee House near St Paul's Cathedral. Bateson's became almost a consultant room where many doctors gathered, and the cocoa tree for Tories and Jacobites. Famously, one coffee shop opened by Edward Lloyd in the 1680s grew in popularity with merchants and ship owners who met there each day to gather intelligence of shipping, to auction cargoes and to report on maritime disasters. Lloyd's eventually evolved into a vast agency dealing in insurance brokerage which still flourishes to this day. Jonathan's Coffee House was, in 1698, used by John, casting to post twice weekly prices of stocks and commodities. It became a go-to place for stockbrokers and developed eventually into the Royal Exchange. Peter Ackroyd, the historian, notes that practices abhorrent to today's society took place. In 1708, 
and notice red. A black boy, 12 years of age, fit to wait on a gentleman to be disposed of at Dennis's coffee house on Finch Lane. These coffee houses were not seen as a place for respectable ladies and it was to this end that in 1674 there was a woman's petition against coffee. The wives argued that their husbands were forever absent from home and family, neglecting their domestic duties and worst of all, made them impudent and all for a little base, black, thick, nasty, bitter, stinking, nauseous puddle water. It was into this social, communicative and economic environment that we see the South Sea bubble emerge and gain popularity. England had been at war with most of its neighbours during the 17th century. These wars had proved very expensive to the Exchequer. As a result of these wars, Britain had amassed a massive debt and whilst at the same time it had a meagre £50,000 in reserve to service this obligation. The government of Britain was basically bankrupt and it had no way to pay the next instalment that would be due on its loans. Central and South America were under Spanish rule and Britain was at war with Spain. However, Britain had secured the rights to supply slaves to the Spanish America at the Treaty of Utrecht in 1713 but only one ship of goods per year for every South American port, as well as the right to trade slaves. On the 7th of April 1720, after initial approval on the 2nd of February 1720, and after lengthy discussions between supporters and opponents in both the House of Commons and the House of Lords, a bill was passed permitting the South Sea Company, run by John Blunt, to refund the government debt by acquiring the £31 million privately held debt. The company had won the competitive bidding against the Bank of England. Under competitive pressure, the South Sea Company had raised its offer of a lump sum payment to the government from £3 million to over £7.5 million, plus apparently about £1.3 million in bribes to various persons. To finance the debt acquisition, the company was permitted to expand its share capital. Despite some objections, and perhaps mistakenly, the company was left free to set the price of the shares issued in the conversion. The bidded sum was so huge because it was hoped that more lucrative trading rights with South America could be won once Britain got a toehold in the market. It was also assumed that the profits from slave trading would be enormous. In order to cement the good name of the company, they gave the King, George I, and other honorary members of Parliament shares in the business. This news spread throughout all the coffee houses. As the King was involved, people were convinced of the authenticity of the shares and the potential to make fortunes, thus demand for the shares skyrocketed. Prices of the shares soared from £128 in January 175 in February, they were up to 330 in March and 550 in May, and yet the prices kept on rising. They were up at £800 at the start of June and almost £1,000 by July. As the value of each share rose, fewer shares had to be issued to knock off the £31 million of Britain's debt. 
but John Blunt had authorization to create more shares and simply sell them at the market rate and pocket a huge profit. And this is exactly what the South Seas company management did. By this time, John Blunt and anyone connected with him had become wealthy beyond imagination. The South Sea Company did not earn any money in operations, and yet it was the most valuable company on the planet, with market capitalisation which was close to 25% of the British GDP. But since the company didn't make any money through operations, there was only one way to keep the company in existence, i.e. ensuring that the share price went higher and higher. Only the sale of new stock could pay the dividend due to the old stockholders and maintain the facade of a successful corporation. John Blunt came up with various schemes to keep the stock prices up, including declaring that people need only put 20% of the money down to take ownership of the stock and the balance could be paid two months later. This created an obscene amount of demand since people were buying five times as many shares as they would earlier, therefore rising the prices higher in the process. However, the public soon realised the illusion they had been living and they all started selling off their holdings. By early August, prices began to drop. John Blunt offered investors an insane 30% dividend on their stock every year for the next 10 years. But this sign of desperation confirmed the public fears that the South Sea Company was a gigantic bubble. The price fell back to £200 by October. A massive sale of the stocks began to take place and within three weeks every share was basically worthless as no one wanted to purchase any shares no matter their price. The stocks crashed and people all over the country lost all of their money. Porters and ladies maids who had bought their own carriages became destitute overnight. The clergy, bishops and the gentry lost their life savings. The whole country suffered a catastrophic loss of money and property. Sir Isaac Newton lost over £20,000 and Jonathan Swift also lost a fortune. He was inspired to write Gulliver's Travels, a satire about British society. Bankruptcies were rampant as many common people had borrowed money to invest in the company, hoping to make a windfall gain in the process. Suicides became a daily occurrence. The public demanded vengeance. The postmaster general took poison and his son, who was the secretary of state, avoided punishment because he contracted smallpox and died. The South Sea Company directors were arrested and their estates forfeited. There were 462 members of the House of Commons and 112 lords involved in the South Sea Company. Frantic bankers thronged the lobbies at Parliament and the Riot Act had to be read to restore order. As a result of a parliamentary inquiry, John Aislabie, Chancellor of the Exchequer, and several members of Parliament were expelled in 1721. King George I also became involved as with his mistresses, the Countess of Darlington and the Duchess of Kendal, who were heavily involved in the South Sea Company and they were blamed by the populace as being responsible. Robert Walpole, who had been against the South Sea Company from the beginning, took charge and sorted out the financial mess. He was made Chancellor of the Exchequer 
when he divided the national debt that had been into the South Sea Company into three, between the Bank of England, the Treasury and the Sinking Fund. The Sinking Fund was made up of a portion of the country's income that was put aside every year and eventually returned stability to the country. And what of John Blunt? Incredibly, he'd been made a baronet for his services to Great Britain during the rise of the South Sea Bubble. He died in 1733, but his title was passed on through generations to the 12th and current baronet, that is, Sir David Blunt. But let's leave it with a good news story to come out of the disaster. That's the story of a bookseller, Thomas Guy, who paid for his famous hospital in London out of the proceeds of the bubble. Guy had bought his South Sea shares as a long-term investment designed to protect a steady, low-risk cash flow for his charitable projects. Later, as the bubble inflated, he had wisely sold his shares. Well, that's it for another episode of the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. I've been Steve, your host. Join us on Twitter and Facebook at the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. Until next time, bye-bye.